we are sort of in between sermon series, as Lois mentioned earlier in the service. And some, one thing I like to do in those gaps is just kind of speak to the core essence of who we are, both as God's people and as God's church, that we just sort of pause and think about what's most important and use this as a time to kind of recenter ourselves as we, as we look into God's Word. And I'm, I'm going to take us into a passage today that one verse of which, at least, is very well known. It is very oft quoted, um, but what is less understood is the context into which Micah was speaking at the time of his ministry on earth. He is a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah and spoke essentially the same message of repentance and judgment and hope uh, that Isaiah preached. Isaiah was far more long-winded than Micah was, and so Isaiah gets called a major prophet and Micah is called a minor prophet. Uh, The main difference between Isaiah and Micah was Isaiah was of the uh, elite class of Israel, and he prophesied mostly to uh, the priests and the royal family and the people in leadership and political power in Israel. He he spoke to uh, the upper crust, and of course, no one listened, but he he spoke nonetheless. Micah had a very different calling. He was from a, a fairly poor rural region of Judah, and he spoke to common people. He spoke in common language, although he was a poet. Uh, He spoke in terms that people could understand, that common people could understand. And so Micah's book, it's hard to preach. In fact, I, I spent a couple of weeks this summer trying to figure out how to do a series through Micah you don't really get any light in the book of Micah until about chapter 6. And so it's hard to do a series where you'd be, you know, eight to ten weeks of doom and gloom uh, just to get to a couple of weeks of hope and light. And uh, it, it can be done. It can be done. I'm not, I'm not saying I won't do it. I just said, I'm just saying didn't feel like the right time. So anyway, um, it's, it's a book I've been spending some time in personally, lately, and I wanted to just kind of bring you into this chapter. And so in the first verse or two, you'll, you'll hear this sort of vague allusion to our need to repent. And I'll just tell you that's, that's built upon five full chapters of an elaboration of our need to repent. So I'm, I'm sort of sparing you five chapters of reading uh, in those first two verses, and we'll, you'll see what I mean, but I just want you to understand the context. Micah has been building up to this chapter uh, in, a, in a long, elaborate call to, to stop our, our sort of crazy lust to satisfy ourselves, to just stop and lay that down and turn around and reorient ourselves to what we truly, most deeply need. And so, I want to take us uh, there, if I may, and 
I'll just point out before we read this passage, I was actually surprised by something when I was studying this for this message. There is a, a double down in verse 8 on two uses of the word love. There's, there's the use of the word love as, as we would use it to talk about a husband and a wife, or even uh, myself and a really good uh, batch of cornbread in an iron skillet, right? With jalapenos and cheese and, yeah, lots of butter, right? Um, there, it's, it's, an ex, it's an expression of attraction and affection, and we, we use the word love in, in those ways about people and food and things and experiences in our own lives. That's a common use of the word love. It, the, the next word after that in Hebrew is, is the word for God's love. For this, this type of love is only able to be expressed from the vantage point of one who is in a position to give to someone who is not deserving of that gift. It's, a, it's an ancient Hebrew word that expresses God's love toward us that we're not worthy to receive it, but He chooses to give it anyway. It's more of an unconditional love, if you will. And, and so, we can never say, and, the, and this, this second word for love is never used to express our love for God. The first word is used to express our love for God. We can, we can love God the way we love other people. We cannot love God on the terms of grace, right? He loves us on the terms of grace. And so that second word for love is reserved for Him, and we are called to reflect that to the undeserving people around us. Gloria, you don't know any undeserving people in your life, do you? Absolutely not. But I'm sure Jimmy has someone in his life who's not deserving of, oh, you're the one who doesn't deserve your wife's love or your daughter's. I get it. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. We should form a support group. Yeah. Um, and so, at, in, in verse 8, I'll just I'll sort of jump there for now, but I want you to understand this before we read it. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That word kindness is the word of, that expresses God's love toward us or our call to express undeserved love toward another, unconditional love toward another undeserving person. So, literally, what this passage is saying is that we, as God's people, are to love grace. We are to love grace. We're to be in love, infatuated with God's grace toward us and our call to express that grace toward others, even when they're not deserving of it. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful, powerful double down. It's kind of surprised me when I, when I read it. I've read this a hundred times, right? And just, you know, kind of going through the Hebrew and was like, oh, wow, that's Love, grace, what a call. So that's what I would like us to explore today. We'll read through uh, the first eight verses of Micah chapter 6. 
Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people and He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. As a born and raised Texan, I can assure you I have no qualifications to speak to you on the subject of humility. I do love to tell people how humble I am, but this is not my strong suit. And the prophet Micah in his, in his work spends five chapters working us toward humility, toward recognizing who we are not and who we truly are. And when we get to this passage, he sort of begins to unroll that call to humility. And he sort of begins with, hey, state your case of how great you are. Say it to the mountains, because they will be totally unmoved by your goodness. Speak it over the oceans. They won't change because of your greatness. This is a call to humility, to examine ourselves, to look inside, and to see, well, just to be honest about what's there. And most of us have one of two problems. You're either like me, and you think way more highly of yourself than you should, or you have the opposite problem, and you don't think very highly of yourself at all. Um, both of which, ironically, are worthy of repentance, believe it or not. And so, Micah begins chapter 6 with a call to look inside. To recognize that we all have our own baggage 
And this means that we are to confess our stuff, to be honest with God about what's truly inside, and to turn away from the ugly, from those lower, lesser impulses that are, we are too easily driven by in life. This call to turn away is, is much of the effort that Micah has put into his book is this call to, to literally stop and turn the other way, to leave our sin and its destruction behind us and to begin to walk toward the light and grace of God in the hope of the Messiah to come. And so, we all have our own baggage. That's, that's the first truth of, of looking inside of ourselves. And we are all in the same boat. If we are, this is, this is the great equalizer of Christianity. That it doesn't, all, think of all of the things that divide in our culture between race and ethnicity and religion and politics and gender, and you just, the list goes on and on and on. And God says, I want all of you to realize one thing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You are all equally in need of my grace. When we recognize that, we are at a great starting point. And God doesn't, doesn't call us to acknowledge our sin because he wants us to feel uh, bad. He wants us to get onto the same level with everyone around us. And that way, I'm no better than you. I'm no worse than you. I'm really no different than you are. And whatever cultural, political, or ideological differences we may have pale in comparison to our sameness in terms of our sin. And so, Micah understands that most of us need five out of eight chapters to be focused on this need to repent, to just stop, be honest with ourselves, and turn around and head in a better, healthier direction. The fact that we're all in the same boat means that we're equal in God's eyes, and we're equal in our need for grace. So, a healthy church begins with everyone there being willing to look inside and be honest with God about who they truly are and who they're not. And Micah then shifts somewhere around verse 4 to tell us to, after we've looked inside, to look up to look to God, to look to His His Word, His direction, His instruction. And he begins with a, a sort of rapid redux of God's record of, of right acting toward His people. Micah is telling us we can trust God, we can trust His record, we can trust His track record with His people. He, he takes us, there's a bunch of weird Bible names in there, you know, and one that'll even make the junior high boys giggle a little bit, um, but uh, you'll have to look for that on your own. 
Yeah, Jason's getting his Bible out. See, I, I help people get into God's Word. It's what I do. Um, but he takes, he takes us in uh, verses 4 and 5 primarily through this sort of weird list of names and places, and here's what he's doing. He basically says, I took you from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, out of bondage into the wilderness. And you were, you were confronted there. You had difficulty, you had trials, you had tribulations, and I, I carried you through those. And then I got you to the Jordan River, and I crossed you over by miraculous form through a river at flood stage. I stopped it and let you cross as a people. I got you all the way from bondage into the land of hope and life and grace, or by grace, I got you through all these things. And so, after we have looked inside and been honest about what's there, we look up and the first thing Micah says is just look at how God works. He takes us out of bondage into freedom, and ultimately into paradise. And He carries us the whole way. This is what He has always done. It's what He's doing now, and it's what He will always be doing as our Creator and our Redeemer. And so, we are called to remember that He is always faithful, and He is always righteous. And I can assure you, there will be times in your life where you do not believe this. Where you look at the circumstances around you and you say, there's no way. There's no way that that God is faithful and good and right. All I can say is He will stick with you even in your deepest doubts and fears and sadness, He will persevere. It's what He does. It's so ironic. All of Israel, with very few exceptions, is led out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're out of slavery. They're out of bondage. They have freedom. And what do they say? We're going to die out here. It's hot. And it would be better if we were back in Egypt, like it's not hot in Egypt. Um, But our circumstances, because of our humanity, make us think that it's over, that there's nothing left. And in fact, God has much in front of us. And so... We look inside, we look up, we learn to trust God's record, to know that He's always faithful, He's always righteous, and we learn to trust God's sacrifice. One of the greatest little pieces of historical irony is right here in verse 7. I will, I will try to lead you into that. This is the kind of stuff that just gets me fired up. I love this. So first... 
verse 6. <laughs> um, what, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And you see this almost sarcastic prophet sort of jabbing God's people and saying, what are you going to pay for your sins with? If you are truly turning around and repenting of your sin, how are you going to pay for that cargo? Um, you, you can't, is his point. There are not enough rams and bulls and vials of oil in this universe for us to atone for our sin. And so the irony begins in verse 6 and it heightens in verse 7. And that second half of verse 7, so from verse 6 through the first half of verse 7 is just the prophet's sort of sarcastic way of saying, you cannot pay for your own sins. Then he turns around and doubles down on the sarcasm and says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That is a bold statement for a 6th century prophet B.C., to, to allude to the possibility of human sacrifice to atone for sin. While none of his original audience would have understood what he was saying, they all would have been shocked by just the suggestion of offering up a firstborn for the atonement of sin. And of course, the powerful historical irony in this passage, is he's talking about atonement and he brings in the mention of the firstborn and God actually uses those words to describe the gift and the sacrifice of his firstborn, Jesus Christ. And so this prophet has, and he, he is being sarcastic. He's using irony in a jabbing way to get people's attention. And as he says this, he even goes a little too far and steps right into the realm of prophetic. And he is at this point um, not so much predicting the sacrifice of the firstborn of God, but alluding to it in this way. And this is this powerful indicator that when Christ comes, the people of God who know this book we'll all go, whoa. That was the last little jab that Micah gave before he shifted into the poetry of hope. It was his last little twist as he wrote that, what are you going to do? Give your firstborn? Oh, wait. God did give his firstborn. And so, we learn to trust God's record and we learn to trust Christ's sacrifice. That we acknowledge we cannot pay for our own sin, but that 
God's firstborn son did pay for our sin. And so the two steps of looking inside and looking up lead us to a place where we can do good in this world, where we can fulfill the calling. Once both of those planes have been brought together in proper alignment, our self and our God, we then are in a position to do good, to follow His Word. He has told us what is good and He has told us what is expected of us, to reflect His nature to the hurting world around us, to the undeserving around us, to express what Christ expressed to us. And so, doing good begins with following His Word, and it also involves, and this is extremely important, that we combine the following of God's Word with the following of our heart, that our Obedience to God is driven by our hearts and not by a sense of duty. And let me just assure you, sometimes the only thing I've got is a sense of duty. And, and I, I, I'm supposed to do this. That's not a bad thing. But what we want to get to is where our action as Christians is driven from the heart. It's what we want to do. It's what we enjoy doing is giving and showing grace to others. And so, this heart element involves our call to stand up for what's right. Um, let, me, let me try to put something in perspective to you. Micah, as I said, is speaking to common people. And in any ingrained political system, what are the common people sick of? Anyone? Anyone? What? They're sick of the status quo because what end of it do they end up on? The downhill end. Yes. Thank you. Well said, madam. Won't be repeated, but it is, a, is being applauded. Um, yeah, exactly. That little town that was mentioned earlier. Thank you, Ralph. Um, so they're on the downhill end of all that's wrong in the world. They suffer injustice on a regular basis. In fact, they expect it. They expect to get run over by those with power. And so as Micah preaches about the call for justice to be restored, his listeners are cheering his words. That yes, God needs to come and restore justice. When Isaiah would preach about justice, restoring justice, his listeners would be like, yeah, maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. This week, I kind of like the way things are going. And so, Micah talks about this call to justice, and it is probably very well received from his listeners. And then he says this powerful combination of words that we are to love grace. We are to be a people that are in love with the concept of grace. We are enamored with the fact that God works on the terms of grace, that He does for us what we do not deserve. Thank God in heaven 
that he does for us what we do not deserve. Um, So we are to be a people that stand up for what's right, that treat others the way God has treated us, and who keep ourselves in perspective and in relationship with God. Healthy perspective remembers it's not about me. It's not even about what I want. It's about God, His righteousness, His glory, His will, not mine. You even hear Jesus pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. And this is the basic orientation that we are called to as a healthy church. That each one of us drills down into the truth of who we are. That we look up to the hope that is ours in Christ and that we act upon that grace and express it to the world around us. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank You for Your grace. We confess that we are not as in love with Your grace as we should be. And yet, we are totally dependent upon Your grace for everything that we enjoy as Your children. And so, Lord, stir within us a renewed love of grace and lead us to do what's right, to show to others what You have shown to us. And Lord, that we might be a people who strike the proper balance between humility and hope. That we would stay close to Your heart close to Your Word, close to Your people, that we might walk in that balance between humility and hope. Lead us, grow us, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.